Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode are paranormal researchers Elsa Clark and Bethan Briggs-Miller, who are the hosts of the Eerie Essex podcast. In their podcast, they explore the folklore, macabre history, and supernatural happenings of Essex, an ancient county in the east of England. There have been episodes on witches, cryptids, ghosts, exorcisms, gnomes, and much more. In the interview, I begin by talking with Elsa and Bethan about how Eerie Essex got started, after which we discuss some of the unusual subjects they've covered in the podcast, as well as a few of their own weird experiences. In Essex, as in most places, the supernatural permeates the landscape, communities and legends of the area. And we also talked about the high strangeness that can arise from personal interaction with those things. The interview was recorded in August 2022. Enjoy! Elsa and Bethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you Thanks for, having, for us. having us. Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> How did the Eerie Essex podcast get started? Uh, do you want to start with that, Elsa? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a long story. We worked in a gallery together and uh, we realised we both had a love of horror and we started writing a horror novel um, when we were at work by writing it down on little pieces of paper and then trading, trading off when we switched galleries. And it kind of grew from uh, that, that novel grew out from that, that point. We tried to work on it after we left the gallery. Um, however, we, it, it never really materialized into anything concrete but we realized we loved the research so much yeah we uncovered Um, a lot of tales didn't we in the research yeah and then we over lockdown we were obviously listening to a lot of podcasts and we realized there was a real lack of anyone doing anything for Essex yeah I I emailed uh Weird Norfolk and said are you ever gonna go south are you ever gonna do anything in Essex and they said why don't you and then I, I messaged Elsa and said, why don't we? And that's what, how that came about. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. Cool. So was the book that you guys were working on, was that something set in Essex then? It was set around the witch trials. Um, well, we wanted to basically take uh, different periods of time, but start off at the point of the witch trials where this paranormal occurrence was happening over and over again but in different periods of time yeah we jump with it the story say every 30 years uh, I still want to do that Elsa it's, it's 
<laughs> yeah, I th it's still a good idea. It's just we we never had time to think about it properly. And there's something about creating something as well, rather than when you have it there in front of you. And I say this a lot on the podcast is, why does anybody need to make up any any of these horrific experiences when you, if you just look at the history of the area it's fascinating um that I think I said that about cash as well like, yeah it's a horror novel in itself yes exactly <laughs> cool so for both of you what is your connection with Essex and experience of it um Beth and I know that you're from Wales originally I also did did you grow up there um most of my life I've lived uh, just over the border in Suffolk and I worked and studied um, in Colchester. So when I eventually moved into Colchester, um, I got more of the Essex experience, but I don't like, I don't, I know that people have a very, I'm trying to think of a nice way of putting this, a narrow view of what Essex is like and a narrow perspective on what people in Essex are like. Uh, due to things like TOWIE um, and obviously the old uh, stereotypes of the white stilettos and so on and so forth. Um, but it's uh, it's so much more than that. Definitely. And yourself, Bethan, how about you? Well, I'm a bit of a Gavin and Stacey story. I <laughs> I met my husband. He went to a, a Welsh university, uh, but I went to a very a different Welsh university he met my best friend while he was there and she sort of spent years trying to set us up we never thought we would because he was lived in Essex I lived in Wales and then one day he came to visit and we went to the Doctor Who museum and the rest is history and then not long after I was moving down to Essex and then you met me yeah. <laughs> and I met Elsa and that was another love story <laughs> something you said there Elsa it does ring true. I, I mean, I have to admit that until relatively recently, I when I thought of Essex, I, I definitely thought of um, somewhere that's more defined by its urban areas and its and its proximity to London. Um, exactly. But but it's actually, yeah. I think, one of the most rural counties in England. Um, as a space, it's got it's got a bit of everything. It's got coastline. It's got hills. It's got villages and almost almost every sort of setting for a supernatural happening to happen <laughs> exactly and there was a uh an academic paper we were going through recently I think we talked about it in the fairies episode that said that um Essex lacked all the appropriate um atmosphere for uh fairy stories and I I have to think that person uh must never come to Essex must never really spend any time here <laughs> It really is a magical landscape. It's as someone who grew up somewhere with hills and mountains, it's it's quite surreal being able to see the horizon. Yeah, it's it's a very <sighs> flat it's a flat place, but it doesn't mean that it's it's a boring place. Oh no, it adds to it. Being able to see for like furlong after furlong, there's something very different about Essex. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I'm I'm from Lincolnshire and that's a county that's probably not considered to have a lot of, sort of romantic rolling scenery but it is there and especially if you look on if you look on ordnance survey maps there's lots and lots of different little places and not just the villages but the the remains of monuments and things that are, are dotted across the mm. landscape so I, I, totally, I totally get where you're coming from 
with that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think part of the reason for doing the podcast was a little bit to give Essex back some of its romanticism as well. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, the stories that are actually told, they like the history, the history is interesting, but it's the it's the bits between, the stories between that really give it, oh, it's, it's magic. There's no other way to put it. Mm, and it's a county that's, that's had human occupation for a long time. I mean, how... In, in the course of doing the research for, your, for the episodes that, of your podcast, I mean, how far back have you gone? The earliest ghosts we spoke about, Saxon? Yes, um, there was the Roman soldier on the Mersey Road. Yeah. And I mean, then... there's plenty of ones that we've come across and they haven't quite fit into an episode subject yet, but it... Um, yeah, Roman is definitely the earliest one we've come across as a haunting so far. But there's We're definitely following the trail on some earlier ones. But as Elsa said, mm. they've they're not we haven't done enough yet to feature in an episode. I mean part of the issue as well is that we've lost so much of um the oral folklore that we would have had uh previously. Where it gets passed down in places like Ireland and Scotland and the places you traditionally think of as being very mythic uh when it comes to Essex I think it's maybe to do with how close we are to London how much London is expanded I think we lost a lot of it along the way and we're trying desperately to try and find traces of it right okay and was there so when you were starting out was there um a a particular phenomena a a particular story that you wanted to talk about something something that sort of that made you initially contact um those people who made the suggestion that you do your own podcast um for me i think it was the the cryptids in the area it's something i was used to in wales the this linking fairies and cryptids together here but that sort of um otherworldly being or paranormal creature it's when i've heard of the black shuck and it's mm-hmm. kind of very similar. I mean, you, you find black dog tales all over Britain and indeed the world. But there was something about hearing it in Essex that made me feel not homesick. A weird thing to feel homesick over. Oh, you've got a devil dog too. <laughs> oh, we have one as well. <laughs> I think it was that. I, I, I'm enjoying finding the links between Essex creatures and Welsh creatures. And they're, they're very similar. Um, I was always fascinated by the witch trials um, and I up until very recently we've actually just done um, an interview with Ben Pates at Cultures Castle but up until very recently they weren't they were all told from the perspective of Matthew Hopkins um, yeah and it was very one-sided um yeah, that was. I mean, it was our second episode, and I I really wanted to delve deeply into that one. That was, the that was the main topic I was thinking of when we started. Yeah, we we wanted a very sort of similar tack that the the museum have taken. Tell the women's story, sometimes mm. men, um, but the women's story rather than focus on Hopkins because he 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 just even now like is in the limelight for it for horrific deeds and the women are forgotten and they're still referred to a lot of the time as witches and they were innocent people Mm, absolutely 
I, mean, I really enjoyed that episode. Um, and when I think of witchcraft in Essex, I do. I have to admit, I do. <laughs> I do think of Matthew Hopkins and and what he did in places like Manning Tree. But in the episode, the he had great branding. Yeah, the um in the in the episode that you talk about um, some other cases of of this happening in in a village called Canudan and in St Osseth and and these were sort of I guess would you describe them as outliers in terms of what what happened there the, in the I think in one case one was one person was a, a cunning woman and, and in Canudan yeah. it, it seemed it just seemed to be a place that wasn't really ever visited by people like Matthew Hopkins no it's known as the village where the witch finder feared to tread which really, I mean, that's it was. I saw that written down somewhere, and that's what um, got me into researching Canudan. Because, as you know, Elsa and I take different um, places and different um, accounts, and then share. So I, I don't see anything Elsa's done, as she doesn't see anything I've done. And what you hear on the podcast is the first time either of us have, well, one of us has heard that story. We we try not to accidentally look at each other's research most of the time, but we have to kind of cross reference with each other and go, "You're not looking at the one in Clacton this time, are you?" Like, and then sometimes it's like, "Damn it, I I wanted that one." <laughs> but yeah, Canudan was it was an odd one because considering that he was you know after witches, whatever he thought they were or what they were doing, you would have thought that Canudan would have been a place he went to, which makes me think that. He was actually afraid of real um, accounts of power and power over people. And he, just, as we all know, he was just after the money and an easy win. And Canudan wouldn't have been that. It, I wouldn't want to cross them. I don't know what else. <laughs> um, no, probably I wouldn't have wanted to cross them either. Um, and as for Ursula Kemp, it was really an outlier with her being a cunning woman. But um, the point being is that a lot of these women were um people who didn't make friends easily in society um and for Ursula she was charging what would have been seen then an exorbitant amount of money for her services so she really did make an enemy out of uh, what was her name I can't remember um was it Sarah yeah, the the woman she was treating anyway, uh, by over well not overcharging her, she was probably charging a fair price for what she was doing, but it it wasn't within uh, that person's uh, economic status to pay it. So uh, she, that that was the easy way out was to uh, accuse her of witchcraft. Yeah, to get out of paying a bill <laughs> by the sound of it. Mm, and. With Canudan as well, one one thing that is interesting is that the tradition there of people practicing witchcraft or being interested in that sort of what might be described as that, it lasted a really long time up until the... Still going on. Wow, really? Yeah, we've been invited to go. <laughs> we've had a lovely email from somebody there. <laughs> Do they have a connection to the, to the people you were talking about? I mean, the, the most recent person that I think you talked about in your episode was George Pickingill. Do you think there's still a connection with him? Um, we've had a couple of people message us who whose grandparents were either they think suspect as part of the coven or knew of the coven. There was somebody on Instagram whose um, grandmother, or yes, it was his grandmother, had a, a witch's broom up over her. She lived in Canudan and 
uh, he the the story was is that she was one of the witches and she had a broomstick up over the the mantelpiece which fell down at one point I think at some suspicious time. Cool, and um, in Saint Osseth, the the building connected to Ursula Kemp now has a, a reputation as being haunted. I mean, yeah. do you? Yeah. I suppose the reason for that is is obvious, given what happened. But but do you, do you think that a place like that, the the phenomena happening there is is because of what happened there? I, I I just wonder if it's if you have a place with such a a kind of a macabre history, does that does that inform the the phenomena, or or would it have happened anyway? I mean, I'm, I always call myself the sceptic on the podcast um, and I think it informs it in the way that you're kind of expecting horrible things to happen there because horrible things have happened there. Hmm. So if you go in with that kind of mentality, you kind of look for, uh, you, you're already primed to see things. Yeah, or to uh, or to see see things and interpret them in a certain way. Whereas I'm the believer, and I think that especially, I mean, it wasn't just Ursula Kemp. I mean, it was the cage. It had lots of people there over the years. Yeah, it was. It was a prison. So I mean, that sort of sheer terror, I imagine, would leave um, some a mark behind, um, a feeling behind. I mean, I know there's been paranormal investigations where things have happened there was one person whose face changed on camera and I've seen it and I, I even though I'm the believer I try to keep a skeptical hat on but even I was a bit like oh that's a bit odd and I know I did see it it was creepy it was very creepy and I'd like to go I know at the moment it's been bought by someone who's turning it into an Airbnb and me and Elsa are waiting for it to open we'll be there that would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> So um, I suppose connected to that, in the, in the course of your research, when you're reading about these things that people have seen or have happened, do you put that through a certain a lens of, well, not, I wouldn't say scepticism, but sort of taking into consideration the amount of time that has passed since that was first reported and, and you know, and how, and how stories can change over time. I mean, what are you looking for in terms of, the information that you use for your podcast episodes? I think the social the social history around when these things are reported are, is really important. Um, like with the, uh, in the exorcism episode, I talk about the, uh, the house on East Hill, um, which was a mother and baby home. And we know that things happened in those homes that would have caused a high amount of alarm and tension. Um, and we know at that period of time as well that it was, uh, I would think it was around the same time that The Exorcist came out. So I like to take into consideration what was going on around the same time or around the same area. Um, we do look into news reports. We look, we go through uh, the British newspaper archive quite extensively before the episode to see if we can find anything around the area at the same time. Mm. And through the old OS maps to see what mm. used to be there, we we it's no fun trying to debunk someone's story. I don't I don't like it when you see um, or hear programs where there's almost a delight in it. I think whatever the explanation is, that person had an experience that could have um, stayed with them for a long time. And I, I've had my own experiences. And just to quote 
Uncanny by Danny Robbins. I know what I saw. <laughs> and I and we, we, we go through we, we discuss in the episode, as you know, um different possibilities, what could it have been? And I don't that don't think there's ever been a point where me and Elsa have said, Oh well that's what it is, it's not that. No. I think I we mean, both we, come away intrigued. We can't claim to be um, you know, experts in parapsychology and uh, physics and all of that but I love looking at other explanations but I would never ever say to someone I don't believe you because that was their experience it wasn't mine so how do I know what really happened yeah I, I completely agree I I just know that sometimes there can be this this idea that people in past societies were perhaps more credulous about certain things and and they they were I don't know almost less critical of Mm. of of the experiences that they had and I don't know this tendency to put some identity on it that perhaps it wasn't um but no I completely agree with you I, I think the experience is the most important thing and more often than not the the experience is so unusual that it I think you just have to take it as that but at the same time I suppose there's always this part of you that wants to try and identify what happened I think I've always had that problem of of wanting to know what happened but also just wanting to enjoy the the mystery and the extent and and reading about someone else's experience yeah exactly we all like a good mystery and we all want to pick things apart but it's um we try and do it gently and with love most of the time I mean I rang Um, you straight away even though it was the middle of the night after seeing a UFO didn't I Yes, you did. <laughs> and I wanted to tell you while it was fresh in my mind. Not the first time. <laughs> would, you, would you mind talking about that UFO, Bethan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I even did a little um, puppet show of it. It's on Instagram. You did. It was beautiful. <laughs> it's a beautiful puppet show, yeah. Um, I've seen two since I've moved to Essex. Uh, one was this black macaroon-shaped object that was coming from coming from the east i thought it was a plane because we often see the planes um taking off from i don't know if it's heathrow or stansted i think it's stansted um, yeah stansted is essex so that would be the closest or south end i suppose anyway <laughs> um it was whatever it was it was a, it was coming up from the horizon and i was i was just watching it because it's quite nice to watch them and as it came closer i could see that it, it wasn't a plane i couldn't see any um anti-collision lights and it was the wrong shape it wasn't a balloon because they move very differently and it was so close and it was so brazen I could see what it was it was almost annoying that I I didn't want to go in because it was moving quite fast I didn't want to get my camera I thought I'm just going to stare at it and take in as much detail as possible and then I went and drew it and it was like yeah a black macaroon with a band of yellow lights around the middle and it was going in and out of the cloud bank and I think I say in the episode it's almost like it was a learner driver he didn't quite know how to keep it in the cloud (laughs) and then another night I was stood there and I was thinking to myself oh I'm so lucky to see that I'm never going to see another UFO and then I looked and there was this big copper disc going overhead again really brazen I think my house is on a flight path maybe it's the learner driver area it is. That's where they take all their learner drivers. It's a nice, safe place, Wivenhoe. There's not much air traffic. Um, you know, nobody believes the people in Wivenhoe what they see, apparently. So it's a safe place to test out your um, spacecraft or whatever it is. <laughs> but yeah, no, it went overhead and it was remarkably similar to uh, another sighting that someone had um, in the area years ago, which was quite fun because I really enjoyed our UFO episode. We 
since they've released all the files. Um, it's been we thought we'd just dip into it and take a few Essex ones, but we've had to do it year by year, haven't we, Elsa? Mm, yeah, because we found so much, and some of it's quite funny. Some people getting really arsy with the um, Ministry of Defence, and some of the letters were quite funny, weren't they? Oh yeah, and we've obviously seen a few that were obviously um, maybe a kid at school just got bored and decided to submit a report, which were really amusing as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And um, and I guess again, going back to this this question, but. Do you, do you have an idea about what it might have been that you saw? Um, it could have been something they were testing out. And if it was something they were testing out, they need to have a look at how obvious it is because if they meant... <laughs> I did actually try. I contacted <laughs> I contacted Colchester Barracks and said, look, I know that I know you're at, like um, UFO reporting places shut. I don't know where to give you this information, but it was, okay, it's either a craft or you're testing something out that you really need to think better of because it was bloody obvious. <laughs> and they would thank me and said they'd pass it on, but they didn't. <laughs> no knock at the door and some men in black turning up at all. <laughs> no, no. Although I do still Maybe to... they neuralised you. Well, yeah, I wouldn't remember, would I? Maybe I did. But um, no, I do seem to be a bit of a magnet for weird stuff, as Elsa will tell you. Yes. <laughs> and it seems to correlate with whatever episode we're doing. Right, okay. So did that happen for the Ghost Monks episode, <laughs> for example? No, I had the weird experience on that that episode. Yes, you did. Um, I, I can't remember. So I, uh, I was um, out doing research at the site I was looking at in Coggeshall. Oh, yes. And um, I was walking around the place where the abbey used to be and there's a small chapel there that used to be part of the gatehouse um for the abbey it was the uh they called it the guests chapel um and i think it's now known as st nicholas's chapel and i was walking around the side of it and i saw this gnarled twisted black burnt tree um and i thought oh that's really interesting and i was photographing it and i suddenly saw this fluttering of feathers um, so I came round to the other side, in through the gate, into the the, um, the little garden of the chapel to look at it. And right before it was sort of very deliberately placed this black um, beheaded bird with its wings mm. splayed out. And it, it looked very deliberate. Um, and we'd also recently just done the, the episode um, we were talking about before we started recording, I think, the CJ's episode where he yeah. finds the the mutilated um rabbit so it was very much on my mind at that point and then i see this thing sort of laid out there <laughs> oh, yeah we had a few bird things because as soon as we finished recording with cj about the we, we were talking about birds in the episode and i i went into the kitchen to like re-listen to it and as it got to the bird bit two pigeons flew into the kitchen window and I I, I got really scared because <laughs> you know when a bird flies into a window you get quite scared but when it's at that moment I was like oh my god and then you had a bird in your house Elsa oh my god I can't I couldn't deal with it <laughs> <laughs> it came I it came down a blocked off chimney and I had to unscrew the vent on the chimney and let it out and then it just flew around my house for ages with me screaming and oh god, I can't can't even think about it again 
Um, but the, the thing with the monk episode as well is that I was looking heavily into the magical practices that monks and the Catholic Church were um, almost controlling at the time. So then seeing this almost occult altar outside of the place I was researching was just very strange to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, so would you both say that since you started doing the podcast, you've noticed more weird things happening around you? I think so. I don't know about Elsa, but I've had quite a few things. Um, I've had, again, I feel so, I feel silly saying it, even though I know there's lots of people who have these experiences, but I think, I don't think it's here anymore, but I think I had some form of fae, um, whether it was a gnome or a brownie or something. It stole and her potatoes. It stole my potatoes, Elsa, and it, they, I they <laughs> think it did. And then throwing stones at my head, like things apporting in the middle of the room. Um, it never felt malevolent. It felt mischievous. I think I, for some reason, pissed off this creature when I saw it in the garden. I saw it. I opened the back door, and it was ruffling through my um, herb garden. And it waddled off, swearing under its breath, or grumping, <laughs> on two legs. And then I was just like, what? And then, yeah, all this weird stuff started happening. Things started going missing. Ended up in the weirdest of places. I found things upside down. I found, um, I was just sat on the sofa and stones were being thrown at my head from nowhere. And things like water dripping on me in the weirdest of places. Like, on the head, sorry, not, that's not the weird place. <laughs> um, <laughs> And like you know, I'd be like sat like in bed reading a book, and all of a sudden, splash! Even to the point where I we I went into the loft to see if we had a leak, and we didn't. But um, yeah, that was a weird one. And just seeing things at the corner of the eye, my son creeps me out a lot because he sees things. Elsa, I don't know if you've had anything as the skeptic. Um, I mean, I know apart from the weirds. Um, blackbird altar and I wouldn't call the the pigeon coming down the chimney was just very unusual timing to be honest Um, and it never happened before and the chimney was meant to be blocked off Um, but I I do sometimes think and I'm not going to say that this is definitely what is happening but I think that we spend so much time researching and looking into these things it's a little bit like the haunted houses I think our brains kind of like start making connections with incidences that maybe we would have passed off as something else before um though i'm fully open to it being something paranormal i just don't know how we can say for sure um but i love thinking of this little gnome terrorizing bethan it's been amusing me for months (laughs) sorry he's gone now i'm actually i kind of miss him i do know what you mean i mean i haven't seen a I haven't seen a gnome where I live, but I do. I do know that I am now at the point where I look back and think that when I was growing up, I used to watch the like the X Files, and I'd be very much of the of the opinion that aliens were coming from space in ships and landing on our planet, and I don't know, doing whatever. And now I can kind of almost completely flipped, and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure gnomes exist, and I would never have thought that all that time ago. And it's funny how. I don't know, sometimes, I think more recently, especially with fairies, more time is being spent analysing those encounters. I mean, I know there's been a big survey of it. Oh, the fairy um, census, that's brilliant with Simon Young, isn't it? And 
I th- are you interviewing Joe Hickey Hall soon? Um, I actually, I interviewed Joe a couple of weeks ago. So Oh, she's fabulous. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's and, lovely. You know, all the people she speaks to through that podcast, uh, there's just something so, I don't know, so natural about those encounters and something so there's so much sort of detail in them about when they happened and where they happened and personally speaking the more the more I get interested in this stuff it it feels like the experiencer is is like a key component of what's happening yeah as soon as you open yourself up I mean that's when I saw that thing in the garden it was after starting Joe's podcast and I think when you start you sort of make yourself a bit of a magnet for things yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is why we're going to do a buried treasure episode. Yes, we're doing buried treasure next. And yes, please, whoever's listening in the face, we wouldn't mind experiencing that. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. When you do that, um, I'm sure you've probably already considered this, but buried treasure is often reported in in North America anyway, near to um, Bigfoot sightings. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, so there's like a, often a connection with when people see Bigfoot in an area, there'll be a, a legend about buried treasure. There are a few um, uh, Essex Bigfoot as well, so maybe we'll find something here. What, what do you call a collective of the big feet or Bigfoots? I say Bigfoots. <laughs> Bigfoots. So could you talk a little bit about the Essex Bigfoots? It's something we're looking into. I mean, it's the neck. I, d- I don't know where it is on our list, Elsa, but... It will have to be another cryptid episode. I think there's a few sightings in Epping Forest. There is. And sometimes it's referred to as the Wildman. There's different um, variations on the same sort of being or entity um, that go hand in hand with different things. I mean, like fairies go hand in hand with UFOs a lot of the time. Mm. And Bigfoot seems to go hand in hand with a very natural sort of... almost green man folklore green man folklore and like i know epping he's seen near the place where there's one of those hills that have got no gravity you know you put your car on the hill take the handbrake off you roll up it it seems to coincide with some sort of natural phenomenon so that i particularly want to look into that and i know um from just a cursory glance at that sort of being that in essex in particular there's been a rise in cases of him, her, them being seen since lockdown or during lockdown when we all had to stay in, things came out to play. We were looking out the window so much more. Yeah, taking time to notice things. Yeah, and, and I know that there's the Woodwose character as well, which is often found carved into the ends of pews and, and churches. So I, 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 wonder mm, if, yeah. I wonder if that's doing something as well. It's like a little, I, I get, I always wonder if, if you have a, a statue of something you're you're drawing the essence of that thing to the area i mean i british people have had garden gnomes in their gardens for must be over nearly a hundred years at least so yeah (laughs) it's a little bit chicken or egg isn't it did we put um did we make these carvings uh because we uh, our ancestors saw or believed that these things were about or have we made these carvings and then attracted these things to us yeah, I think you're right. Something I, I wonder is, are we doing things without realising what we're doing? So if there was a tradition of having a, a household deity, like with the Romans, for example, and they had a statue in their house, which they looked after, 
and that statue housed the the deity or being or whatever you would like to call it and then does that tradition go away with the people when when those people leave or is it something that stays in in the area and then you know a few hundred years later when people it's most gnomes i think are hollow so it could be essentially it's essentially a statue are you are you giving whatever it is somewhere to to come through i don't know <laughs> that's a very neil gaiman way of looking at it yeah <laughs> i do like this idea of portals i mean i've been looking too much at skinwalker ranch and like the idea of like especially i mean i think in america from what i can gather that the whole idea of bigfoot is being seen as this creature perhaps an interdimensional being now which is why they disappear so quickly and so quietly whether we have a similar a thing here an interdimensional and there's, there's there's weak points between both dimensions where we do see things and things overlap we see each other for a split second and then we go on our ways again I mean, I like the interconnectedness of it all with the the fey folklore and the UFO sightings, um, and you get these very similar descriptions of phenomenon. It makes me think that maybe the fey folklore is, and the then our new UFO sightings is still us doing what we've always done as as a human race, is explaining things to ourselves, um, to make sense of things we don't understand yet around us yeah it's Especially... a, it's almost an evolution from um when we thought it was fairies till uh up to the the 50s when we start thinking it's ufos yeah they started blending haven't they sort of mm. the the sightings are sounding quite similar yeah and something else about ufos is the that i've been thinking about more recently is that that the term flying saucer came about by accident, the person in the 40s who... The pilot, wasn't it? The pilot, Kenneth Arnold, when when they'd asked him what he had seen, he didn't describe them as flying saucers, but I think a newspaper or a, or a radio broadcast called them that. And that's that's one of the greatest brandings of anything that's, that's ever been. And it's, it's so influential in terms of what people report seeing. And you know, it's it's inspired art and science fiction. It's a huge part of science fiction, and it all, and it all came about from almost a throwaway phrase. A throwaway and, phrase, and yeah. That's why it's quite hard to um, look back in the new, especially the newspaper archives, because you find yourself having to try all variations of words. I mean, UFO will only get you back as far as the eighties, and then it's flying saucer, and then before that, you really have to be prepared to sit in front of your laptop for a while because I found mm. one from where I used to live um, in Aberkentfig in South Wales and there was this wonderful one it was a, a, a really it was you know textbook but they hadn't had a word for it it was before flying saucers so it was strange lights in the sky so to try and find that to type that in you get so many things that you just got to keep delving I mean there's probably a lot in there that it's hard to find because it's doesn't use the key words yeah absolutely i mean it could be called a will-o'-the-wisp or a fireball or a, a, wheel, a, a wheel of fire something like yeah, that. yeah wheel of fire so you've got a i think we should have a list of things we could look for <laughs> we'd have to have it for every single subject yeah. um because we do the same with uh ghost sightings it could be 
uh, ghost haunting apparition uh specter all these different words that um we use to describe phenomenon um you you basically have to be a thesaurus to try and get to the bottom of some of these reports yeah especially trying to look for the history of a place i mean with our Mm. theater episode um there was quite a few theater ghosts and we wanted to find out what happened in the places and a lot of the time especially from around like the 1900s 1920s didn't really use the word death in a lot of the um, newspaper ones but we found if we typed in the word tragedy we'd start unraveling more and more so a lot of the time they tried and avoid words like death or dead so if you put um and suicide and things like that so tragedy seem you seem to get a lot more right okay so with the theater you mentioned there what was what's this what's the story we had a few the one that sticks out in my mind was that one in south end the one that it was had... endless wasn't it well yeah and it wasn't to be honest it wasn't even the ghost the ghost part was quite small but it was the vast amount of strange accidents that happened there that really made me tell the tale really i mean the ghost it got to the point where i was like oh i've, I've found better ghost ones than this i might not do this theater and then i just did a really quick search you know with this particular theater and then the more i looked at it the more i was like someone got mauled by a lion in the theater because it used to have a zoo at the back um the amount of people who accidentally got shot at the yeah. firing range i was going to the, say there wasn't there something with a fun fair as well the ghost train that crushed someone because they accidentally yeah. got under it and then it came down on them. It was it was almost like um, a prequel to Final Destination. Yeah, it sounds and like it. <laughs> it was horrific, wasn't it? And yeah, never mind the ghost. I'm surprised it didn't have more ghosts. And this like, was all in one place. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like outside it, people, sh- like someone shot their wife. And yeah, it was just weird. And it's still there. We should go. Oh, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> so, so with something like that, what do you what do you think is is going on? Is it did you find something that might be sort of like a a point from which this this stuff starts? No, I'm still digging into it, but there are other places where you just seem to keep coming up with stories. I mean, Treasure Holt was a horrific one. Mm. Um, and that had lots of things happen, uh, including like devil worship. I think a lot of it was embellished storytelling by people who passed on the story, but they were horrific stories. And the fear of that place must have come from somewhere. And a lot of the time, I think, especially in Essex, especially in coastal areas, a lot of it was smugglers. Smugglers, yeah. I think a yeah. lot of the tales worked in their favour, so they fanned the flames a little bit, made them a bit more scary to keep people at bay but um no there are definitely areas where there seems to be a a higher than normal amount of strange things going on and horrific things going on well you could argue that if as soon as one bad thing happens at a place it can uh it gets that reputation and Mm. then it will attract you know more bad incidences because it's um people know that's that's if you get a certain type of person going there because it's it's on their radar already Mm. yeah yeah i i I know what you mean i something else i i think is that in western society in our culture the supernatural this kind of phenomenon has been sort of 
put to one side it's been separated from the rest of our culture and as as something to not be taken seriously but it is something that is part of us and so i, I when when these things happen when these when we find these places that seem to have a a reputation and it's not something where you necessarily have like a a lot of recorded history about it it's i think it's because it's we're like people are just connected to it like human society is is connected to these places and mm. there's a somehow that we have a way of, of of recognizing places that have this sort of ambience i guess mm. i think that's in the first episode because we described why we were doing it not just how we came about it was sort of like why we were doing it and as you say folklore in particular seems to have fallen into the between it's, it's not quite considered history whereas it is it's an incredibly important part of history it's how people viewed mm. the world it's how they made sense it's of things they, and... yes it's how they thought mm. so it's it's definitely an important aspect to consider and to preserve um because it's the best way of of sort of getting into the mind of somebody from that period of time yeah it adds it, it, it needs to be studied alongside the history alongside the facts because it's yeah it's it's the people yeah definitely I mean, it's just that the the folklore includes not only history about the day-to-day lives of people in these places but also the encounters that they have with all the all the weird stuff that we've been talking about that's the thing that has to be taken into consideration I think and it also gives you a good idea of what they feared or what they wanted at that time um you know stories about the black shaka stories about people being scared of uh of the like the looming fear of death and I know that's very universal but it's um the way they interpret it is an important aspect I think yeah yeah and i'm not sure but i i imagine in those times the way we take in stories and information is you know through books or over our laptops or smartphones and very much very much through the written word and even up until relatively recently that wasn't the case it was very much a like you were saying an oral storytelling tradition and and there were just little things that it's it's easy to forget um were big parts of of these people's lives so a lot less light pollution a lot less light in general which mm. i think would make places in the countryside more scary <laughs> yeah it's, it's things like that you forget but also places i think probably where whatever these things are felt more comfortable being them in you know like <laughs> Yeah. So it's um, little things like that. I think are well worth considering. Or, or I try to. I try to when I'm when I'm thinking about the things people reported and the experiences that they had and the the law of the place. Well, this is why Elsa and I want to continue this, and we are actually starting um, a bit of a project with Erie Essex. We're taking it on the road. Um, so for from October, September onwards, we're going to be taking um, our recording equipment to different places where people, we're going to invite people to come and talk to us about their their beliefs, what they heard from their grandparents, 
um, any superstitions they know, any stories, and just talk to anybody really and record them. And the Essex Record Office and the Folklore Archive are going to be archiving what we have found um, as part of that. And then we're going to have, as well as the Eerie Essex um, main podcast, we'll be having a, a sort of a side project called Listener Stories, which is what we're going to be gathering when we go around all these different places. I'm so excited to hear what people are going to come to us with because we get a lot of our stories from uh, accounts that are written in other places and they've often been written down by somebody else who's heard it from somebody else. So getting first-hand material is going to be fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like a, a, a real adventure. Do you have a like a mystery machine type vehicle to, tr- to drive around in. <laughs> oh, that would be so good. Or, or yeah. Or I wish we did. The car. My tiny, <laughs> I don't think my tiny little car is going to do it somehow. <laughs> no. I think it's going to be mostly trains. Mostly trains. And no, we've, um, we've persuaded a friend to be our, our roadie. Oh, we've got a roadie. Yeah, we've got <laughs> a roadie. So, uh, and we've got, well, actually we're able to do this project because of a grant we received from um, Explore Essex. That's right, isn't it, Elsa Explore Essex? Yes. Mm -hmm. I keep wanting to say something different, I don't know why. Um, But yeah, they've given us um, a very, very generous grant to um, update our equipment and to make it more mobile and to pay for us to go around and actually gather these stories. And then we're having a a website made. There's going to be part website, part blog, part archive um, for these as well. So we've been very busy. Brilliant. And and alongside that, are there... Any any particular cryptids or UFOs or ghosts that you're hoping to investigate in more detail soon? Um, well, was our next one, as we said, is buried treasure. Have we decided the one after that, Elsa? Well, we were talking about stones, weren't we? And I was Stone. really, I really want to get into the incidents at Scrap Bag at Green. I'm excited about that one. Yeah, there's a lot of good stories around stones in the area, and. I, I realised from having heard my voice on recordings, I say stones in a really weird way. Stones and bones. <laughs> that sounds all right. Um, <laughs> Scrap Faggot Green sounds really familiar. What is what is that place? Well, the uh, uh, Sydney Moore, um, she did the Essex Witch Museum books. And I don't know if she partic- if she names it Scrap as Scrap Faggot Green, but basically the story... Um, the first book she did is very similar to that story uh, but Sc- Scrap Faggot Green was a place where a supposed supposed witch was um, put to death um, I don't know whether they burned her whether this was when it was considered uh, heresy or whether because they there's different times where um which where accusations of witchcraft or the crime of witchcraft was considered heresy and after uh, they changed the um, meaning of witchcraft to be considered was it treason after that um yeah it changed from one to the other which uh, meant a different execution yeah for, for heresy it was being burnt and then for uh, treason it was being hanged so i possibly this particular witch was burnt and then her ashes were put under this rock um and apparently anyone who moved the rock or uh, the whole village, if the rock was moved, would be cursed. And in World War II, of course, the roads had to be widened for the American troops coming through. And they moved the rock across the road to the pub. 
And this then triggers a whole host of poltergeist activity throughout the entire village. Yeah, it's a good story. Um, yeah, it is a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I'm really looking forward into, into digging into it further. And of course, you've got your stones that like to go to the river to drink at night. Um, stones that uh, the devil threw when he couldn't get his own way. There's a lot to cover with stones. I think I read something recently as I was doing a bit of background research about um, some little carved headstones that were found inside a grave that I've, um, I need to read further up on it. But they found hundreds of these tiny, tiny little carved heads oh. in a grave and they, it was attached to a particular folklore, but I, I haven't got that far yet with it. Oh, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. With stories where a stone circle is, the legend is that it's some people that have been turned into stone for some reason. It's I really like those. I mean, I know it's like really unlikely that they are, but sometimes when you look at them, you go, well, they do sort of. Especially in the moonlight. Do, yeah, they do look light. like people. And... and we grew up listening to Children of the Stones, watching, you know, there was a great surge in folk horror almost in children's television at one point there was children of the stones there was that one with the two boys who went up north on a holiday and there were these stones that used to move at night and i got really scared by it and i cannot find it anywhere i know it was on bbc so it was a cbbc thing you know when cbbc did things that scared you like demon headmaster oh yeah <laughs> they don't yeah. do that anymore and they should um, i think well, I think it, things like that really primed our generation for uh, for this kind of interest, didn't they? Like yeah, round the twist, all like this. <laughs> round the twist, yes. Um, I I just finished reading a a book. It's quite it's a pretty old book by Paul Devereux called Earthlights, and oh, that sounds familiar. And in that, he was talking about how they had done research on the uh, some of the electromagnetic properties of of a stone, so the stones at a stone circle. And it did seem that they were like they had been aligned in a certain way. Um, the people had somehow had some ability to sense electromagnetism in these stones. And I know that there's a in France, there's a, a long line of stones that are similarly aligned in, in a certain way. And when you, when you combine that with the, the spiritual beliefs of those people, it, I, I do start to think that they did have a, they had their own science and their own spirituality. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think when I was studying before, um, I used to study archaeology at college, uh, we visited Stonehenge and Avebury, and I think they said there's some correlation between how those two are aligned as well. That if you um, trace uh, where Stonehenge is to Avebury, you can see it's almost like a procession line. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Elsa and Bethan, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being guests on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having us. We've enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been lovely. If people want to find out more about yourselves and the Eerie Essex podcast, how best do they do that? Probably at the moment, with all the new projects we've got coming up, Twitter um, is the best place. But we're also on Facebook and Instagram. So any new um, stories, any links to our po uh, podcast and the different episodes, you can find them on any of our social media. And if anyone's feeling really generous and wants to help us out, you can find us on Coffee and Patreon. 
And if you want to tell us any stories as well, you can email us. Um, we're on eerieessexpodcast at gmail.com. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that info in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Elsa and Bethan. I think they're doing a fabulous job on covering, preserving and promoting the weird history of Essex with their podcast, which can be a great medium for that sort of thing. I know that there are similar projects for many other parts of the United Kingdom, which is great to see. Definitely check out the Eerie Essex podcast if you enjoyed this episode. Please also consider rating it wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support some other sphere with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at spherehq, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.